Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on the coal, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots of Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Please. In preparation for the sermon this week, I was looking at different lists of top political promises that those who are running for office make. Here are the ones that were the most common across the board. A corruption-free political system, free health services, a violence-free society, respect for women, jobs for the youth, road construction and expansion, putting money back in our pockets, free basic education, fighting against racial discrimination and immigration reform. But regarding all these promises, comedian Dove Davidoff said, all politicians promise that which they cannot deliver. I just wish they did it less gleefully. <laughs> Our text today from Zechariah 9 is basically a list of promises that Jesus makes. He's the chosen one, and he's going to fulfill. In many ways, the events that we're celebrating today, known as Palm Sunday, are his inauguration parade. We see that he's riding into Israel as their king. But Jesus is not just riding into Israel as their king. He's also riding into Israel as your king. And this morning we're going to walk through four of his royal promises that he offers you as one of his subjects. But first of all, let us recognize that Jesus is not just some run-of-the-mill politician. He can actually fulfill the promises that he's made. We see this in 1 Thessalonians 5.24, where it says, Faithful is he who calls you, and he will also bring it to pass. And so let's look at these four amazing promises that he makes as seen in Zechariah chapter 9. First, your king comes to rescue you. The prophet Zechariah is given a prophetic glimpse into the future, and he sees Jesus riding into Jerusalem as the Messiah, or the anointed one. Upon seeing him, he declares him to be righteous and having salvation or deliverance with him. And the Jews of the day knew a few things about deliverance or needing to be delivered. Way back in their history, they saw captivity in the form of Egypt. The pharaohs keeping them captive for 400 years and them being delivered through the hand of Moses. They were also taken into captivity in Babylon. And there they spent many, many years, 70 years in captivity. And at that present time, they were under occupation. The Romans were there, and they were oppressing the people. And so they had been enslaved to these different civilizations. And it's most likely that when Jesus rode into town that week before his crucifixion, the Israelites thought he was going to be like Moses, delivering them from their earthly oppressors. Maybe he would cause plagues to come down on the head of the Romans. 
maybe some locusts or turning the river into blood. Or maybe he would kill Pilate's firstborn son, letting Rome know that their God was more powerful than the gods that they served. In fact, the very word that we uh, were shouting a little bit earlier this morning, Hosanna, and that they were shouting along those streets that day, literally means, I beg you to save. How disappointed they must have been on that Saturday, (laughs) the next one, when they found themselves right in the middle of the same plight that they had been in. And this potential leader, this one who was supposed to free them, was dead. And we experience this many times, don't we? We find ourselves in the midst of some kind of predicament of life, crying out, Hosanna, God, I beg you, save me. But months later, we're still right in the same mess that we were in before. And that's when we get to begin to get the sinking feeling that maybe Jesus did not come to save us from our present circumstances. He came to save us from something even more profound and perplexing. He came to save us from ourselves. This fact was so amazingly illustrated in the story of the paralytic man who was brought by his friends. They brought him to this house and they couldn't get in. And so they went up on the roof and they opened a hole in the roof and they lowered their friend down. Think about your house if that happened to you today. There's a claymation movie called The Miracle Maker, which depicts the scene that happens there. And I love how it portrays this paralytic man. Because this man seemingly didn't come very willingly. In fact, his friends brought him, and being paralyzed, he obviously couldn't resist too much. And so in the movie, we see he's being lowered down. He won't even look at Jesus. He keeps telling his friends, it's no use, it's no use, just let me die. But something surprising happens when Jesus first addresses him. Jesus says, my friend, your sins are forgiven you. And suddenly a glimmer of hope comes across his face. And he turns and looks at Jesus for the first time. My sins can be forgiven me? Jesus here went right to the heart of the issue. Because more than physical healing... More than freedom from our circumstances, each one of us needs saving from our sins. And so we have many things that we need to be saved from in this life. Maybe we need saving from some kind of financial pinch. Maybe we need saving from a physical ailment. Or maybe we need God to save a loved one from destructive patterns. But more than all that, we need to be saved from our sins. And that brings us to our next point. Your king is humble. Zechariah, in his prophetic vision here, he sees something very unusual about Israel's king that's riding in. He's humble and he's riding in on a donkey. And when you humble yourself, you're lower than the position you are in your current state. For instance, maybe the president of the United States would humble himself by going to a region that a hurricane hit. And he would visit and take off his suit jacket and his tie, and he would get right in line there and start serving the people that were in need. That's a way for him to humble himself. Or maybe as a grandpa, your grandchildren see you as this big towering figure in their lives, and then you get down on the floor and you begin to put Legos together with them. 
humbling yourself, lowering yourself to their level. And so here we see Jesus humbling himself more than anyone in the history of the world has humbled themselves. The God of creation became one of the created beings. In Philippians 2.7 it says, But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. As God, he had all of these attributes. He knew everything. He could do anything. He could be anywhere. He was imperishable. Nothing could hurt him. And yet for a time, 33 years, he set that aside in order to become like us, to suffer like us, to experience the things that we experience, to be tempted in every way as we are tempted. And then he came to take the sin of mankind upon himself. Does this seem strange or fantastic? It doesn't when we begin to think about God's justice. And as creatures that are made in God's image, we have an innate sense. A sense that there has to be payback. When someone hurts somebody else, a price has to be paid. Retribution needs to be offered. Punishment needs to be doled out. And one of the most humiliating things that you can do is take the blame for something that you didn't do. Some have added to the definition of humility by calling it power under control. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the chief priest came with the soldiers from the temple and they took Jesus, we saw that power under control. Because Peter pulls out his sword thinking he's going to do some good and he cuts off Malchus's ear, the servant's high priest. And Jesus looks at him, heals the guy's ear and says to Peter and says, don't you know... I have 12 legions of angels, thousands upon thousands, that can come at this moment if I tell them and destroy all these people. And yet he held back, and he went forward with the plan, the plan of salvation for mankind. He willingly embraced pain and torment for the sake of another. And the most amazing act of love was that there's Jesus on the cross, and by the way, that wasn't the most painful thing. Lots of people have died on the cross. Lots of people have died worse deaths than being on the cross. The thing that happened in that moment, though, that was so traumatic to Jesus, to the point where he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is that he took all of the sin of mankind upon himself and was removed as far as the east is from the west from his father who could not be in the presence of sin, God turning his back on sin. Jesus becoming that for us. Next we see here, your king brings peace. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a curious animal. He entered the city gates on the back of a donkey colt. In fact, this morning I was... Danny was going to be the colt, and I was going to ride in on him, but his back's a little sore this morning, so we decided not to do that. But In ancient Middle Eastern culture, though, this creature was seen as an animal of peace, in contrast to the horse. The horse was seen as an animal of war. When you saw people on horses back then, they were either going out into war, or they were coming back 
from war or they were occupying a territory. And so the people were expecting conquest. <laughs> they were expecting this king to come in ready for war. And we know that by what was in their hand. They were waving palms. And palms in that culture were a symbol of triumph. They expected to Jesus to come in and triumph over their enemies. Our Zechariah prophecy here shows that Jesus had come ultimately to put an end to war. Verse 10 says, He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bull shall be cut off, and they shall speak peace to the nations. But what happened? <laughs> Did it not work? I mean, we see all these wars still going on. Currently today, a war in Ukraine, wars all that time. In fact, right after this, in 70 AD, the Romans came in and destroyed everything. They destroyed the temple, and the Jewish people were dispersed. And so what's he talking about here? He's going to cut off the chariot and end war. Well, we see later in the book of Revelation... Jesus coming in the clouds, and he's coming to make war. Listen to uh, verse 1 of chapter 7, where we see Jesus in the clouds, and then in verse 17, uh, the, they will wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will triumph over them, because he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. And so when's this peace going to take place that the Bible is talking about? Because here it seems like he's still warring. We see the answer in Revelation 21, verses 22 through 26, where there's the description of the new Jerusalem, which is the capital city of heaven. And I saw a temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, a sign of peace. And its gates will never be shut by day, no fear of war. And there will be no night there. They will bring their glory and honor into the gate of the nations. And so in heaven, there's going to be no more sin, no more curse, no more reason for people to have wars. Why do people have wars now? Why is the war in Ukraine going on? I want that stuff. I want this land. I want your oil. You said this to me and hurt my feelings. I'm going to drop a bomb on you. That's the way wars begin. But in the New Jerusalem, there's no more of that. War and turmoil indicate we are still living in a world that is dominated by sin. And we see this every day in our human interactions. Are you looking forward to some peace in your life? Perhaps much of your life has been marked by one stressful event to another. You're like, when am I just going to get a break here, right? It's just one stressful thing after another. Relational drama, and you need some peace in your life. Well, we don't have to wait for heaven for that to happen. Because we can get next to Jesus. <laughs> we can get close to him. And the Prince of Peace can bring peace in your life. It may not fix the, you know, the, the, the problem right in front of you, but it can bring peace for the moment for you as you look at the future and that Jesus has control of these things. 
Finally, it says here that your king is universal. The final thing that's revealed to Zechariah in this prophecy is the fact that Jesus, the Messiah, is not just for Israel. He's actually for all the nations to the end of the earth. In the last verse, uh, half of verse 10, it says, His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. I think this was probably the most shocking part about the, the prophecy that he saw, the vision, because at that point, Israel was used to destroying the pagan nations around them. The Gentiles were the unclean ones. They would come in and they would make war and battle against them. And here he sees that all of a sudden this salvation, this redemption is extended to the entire world. And you're included in that plan. I'm included in that plan. We are included in that. And by the way, in heaven, there's not going to be some kind of guerrilla warfare, some kind of underground resistance, this little pocket over here that still does not bow the knee to Jesus and continues to fight. Everybody in heaven is going to be under the rule and reign and authority of Jesus. And we see this in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, probably a passage that many of you are familiar with. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Some people will confess that willingly. Jesus, you're my Lord. Some people will not confess it willingly, but they'll be forced to confess it. In other words, they're going to see Jesus coming with power and glory as the king of the universe, and they're not going to be do, able to do anything about it, and they're going to conf confess, okay, I guess he's Lord. And we have this opportunity today to be part of that first group. Jesus is already sitting on the throne in heaven right next to God the Father. But at times when we look around the world, it doesn't seem like his rule and reign extends to our circumstances. The world still seems out of control. Death still claims 100% of us. As I was researching for this uh, sermon, I was looking at different video clips of people depicting the triumphal entry, this thing that we're focused on here today. And as far as inaugural parades go, it was pretty lame. There was only one person riding anything, a donkey, right? All the rest of the followers, they're a dusty rag of, you know, ragtag group of fishermen, one tax collector. Everybody around is pretty much poor, and they're welcoming this guy in to Jerusalem there. His entourage looks pretty shabby. And while I was watching, and I thought to myself, this is how the God of the universe decides to reveal himself to the world? But then I thought, this is how most of the world is. <laughs> Lowly and shabby looking, right? If he had come as some famous person or some powerful leader, nobody would have been able to get close to him. And yet here's Jesus, right in the midst of the common people, probably reaching out and touching him. We saw that in many other circumstances that he was in. I'd like to ask you this question. Consider this year, let's say you said, this year I'm going to physically touch Joe Biden. 
physically reach out and touch him, shake his hand. How, do you, how possible do you think that would be? Especially in a non-election year when he's not shaking a whole lot of commoners' hands. I mean, during the election year, maybe if you situated yourself right, but now he's off doing his other thing. He's not shaking any of your hands. This is the king of the universe. The creator of all. Right there in the midst of the shabby people interacting with them. In conclusion, in this passage, Jesus promises us salvation, accessibility, peace, and acceptance. These four things are at the very core of what every human desires. And so on this Palm Sunday, I pray that you would be given eyes to behold your king riding into Jerusalem on a donkey colt on his way to die on the cross for your sins. And we'll be celebrating that in just a week here. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your royalty. Lord, we thank you that you have chosen to make us heirs and part of your royal subjects, Lord, given us promises that you will fulfill. And so, Lord, as we look forward to the cross and ultimately your resurrection and your return, give us courage, Lord, and strength in the, t- in the day and the task ahead. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon series from Elam. If you are encouraged today, would you consider supporting our online ministry through a financial contribution? Personal checks can be made out to Elam Lutheran Church and sent to 11504 26th Street, Northeast, Lake Stevens, Washington, 98258. Or you can give online at elamlutheran.net. Thank you and may God bless you the rest of your day.